now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. I have a haircut scheduled for this Saturday, and I feel like a kid whose parents just told him he's going to Disney World next weekend. I have not been more excited about something in years, I think. The big development, Nick. Big development, man. It's taken a lot of shit just to keep this down at this point. I can tell. <laughs> I was going to say you look good, but then Suzanne oh, yeah. took a shot at you. Thanks, so. Phil. That's so nice. I'm just <laughs> jealous because this mouth needs a cut, too. <laughs> Hi, guys. It's Barstool Politics. Uh, I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Uh, Phil Barker from Keene State College. Did I say that right or did I mix your two names up? No, you're good. You said it right. Okay, good. I can't even remember what happened five seconds ago. Anyways, hi, guys. Um, and then we have our original super guest, uh, Dr. Suzanne Chad, with us this week. Hi, Suzanne. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm happy uh, to see faces that are not just my family members. <laughs> I think we're all on that page at this point. Um, before we get started, all the usual fun stuff. Uh, you guys, if you want to see what we're up to, um, new developments, things like that, follow us on Twitter. Uh, live shows you'll find on uh, Facebook and YouTube. Uh, so definitely check those out. We normally do those on Wednesdays around 4.30 Central. Beers we, each, uh, we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, our merch line you can find on teespring.com. Uh, you'll find a direct link on our uh, social channels. Uh, and then the podcast. Uh, you'll. <laughs> I was waiting for the product placement. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Um, the podcast uh, you can find on most major podcasting platforms, uh, Spotify and iTunes, definitely, uh, and a bunch of other places. So review us, share us, like us through there. We always appreciate the support. Um I think that was everything. I hope it was a good so. intro, Nick. I'm done now, right? Cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, lots of uh, lots of fun, interesting developments this week. We have Suzanne with us, uh, so we definitely want to talk about the election, about Congress, uh, domestic policy, um, just about anything that's happened, uh, you know, during this this exceptionally strange time. But before that, Suzanne, we haven't had you on in a while. How is how is COVID or COVID? life been for for you and your family <laughs> oh thanks it, you know we i talk about often how lucky we are that we you know our our storm is relatively common our boat is relatively well made so we're we're faring better than a lot i mean we all have our days obviously but you know kids are done with school i'm done with school we're just trying to get in a routine everyone's healthy not wood. so yeah thanks for asking very good yeah. um yeah anyways let's uh let's dive right into it. Bill, can you give us a rundown of our first topic? 
You bet. So as Nick noted, we are thrilled to have Dr. Suzanne Chad back with us to help break down the 2020 presidential election. Like everything else in life, COVID has flipped the election on its head, and it's fair to say this will be anything but a normal presidential election. So much to break down. Uh, what is Trump up to? Can Biden run an effective campaign from his basement? Uh, let's start with the diagnosis of the Trump campaign strategy. They are flushed with cash, but coronavirus upended their initial plans of running on the economy. More recently, the president has returned to his greatest hits from 2016 and appears to be attempting to turn Joe Biden into Hillary Clinton. Trump has accused his current and past opponents, as well as dozens of others from the deep state of felonies. He has fanned the coronavirus culture war over a face mask and church closing, and he's found a new enemy, voting by mail. Uh, Why does Trump hate voting by mail? Uh, Just yesterday, he tweeted, quote, there's no way, zero, that mail-in ballots will be anything less than substantially fraudulent. Mailboxes will be robbed, ballots will be forged, and even illegally printed out and fraudulently signed. Shifting gears to Biden, it's hard to know what the campaign from his basement is going to look like. Uh, Suzanne, what's your read on the state of the presidential race? (laughs) Can we be done? Is that all I had to say? Um, So I I have quite literally a page of notes, which obviously I will not go through all of them, but I was overprepared because there's so many parts of this, right? It's what's Trump doing with his campaign? What's Biden doing with his campaign? What is the state of the race more generally outside of campaign dynamics? Because there's these fundamental things that we know that drive electoral outcomes regardless of campaign. Um, But I think, Bill, what you did was great, which is like, here's what his strategy is. It's the same playbook. It's the same strategy from 2016. He just found some same and different demons Right. So rather than it being the Obama Clinton administration, it's the Obama Biden administration. You hear that's consistently what's being referred to as to remind everyone that didn't remember that Biden was his VP, um, blaming the deep state and fake news and now taking on mail in balloting. Um, you know, as you said, he can't run on the economy, which is the one of the if not the fundamental factor that dictates the the the, the outcome of an election. And I think what he's trying to do is he's saying consistently that we're going to be back, we're going to be stronger than ever, the country's going to open, the economy's going to rebound, and we'll be better than ever. And he's hoping or presuming that that's going to happen um, in enough time for him to run on a strong economy. But like most things, he doesn't quite understand how economics works. And um, you look at a state like Georgia that is already opened, one of the first ones to open, and their economy is still stagnant. It is not It is not increasing. Um, the prediction is that the second quarter GDP is going to be down 5.7%. Yeah. And um, that does not bode well, where his net approval is negative 11 right now. So we're looking at some forecasting models that, um, if you look at just those factors, show potentially significant electoral college loss for Trump if these things remain the same, right? And that has nothing to be said about whatever campaign strategies Biden is trying to infuse because his campaign, his he looks like all of us sitting here like, guys, do you remember me, right? So some of the things that he's doing, just quickly, um, I, I think we've all seen, he has like no digital presence. He has like no digital staff. He's doubled his digital staff in the past, couple of weeks so taking a lot of four he's up to four now (laughs) i think that the statistic i read said that bernie sanders just social media team was bigger than biden's full digital team that and they're both white guys you can't blame like the old white guy card right i mean this is something that's biden specific that he says like i need help from my grandkids to use a phone like he just doesn't 
He doesn't already use the technology. And he didn't, I will say though, he didn't expect to need a digital presence in the primary, right? I mean, all of a sudden he's thrust into finishing out this weird primary and in some ways running for the general already in a way he had anticipated. So he's doubling that staff. Um, he again is taking a, a cue from the Obama um, campaigns and he's putting together a centralized department for voter mobilization and making that staff more diverse because he's been hit for not having a very diverse staff and specifically targeting minoritized and undermobilized communities um, because that's what's going to get him elected is mobilization, mobilization, mobilization. It's not persuading because, you know, as we heard, if you ain't black, you're not, you know, you're not black if you're not voting for me. Um, it's about getting people out to the polls and he has to try, he has to do that digitally and it's, he's creeping in, but it's, it's going to be really hard to crack through. Shouldn't, I mean, they had so much time. There's nothing else going on right now. Shouldn't this, I mean, and, and they've got, you know, they, they can pull on the expertise from the previous Obama team. Shouldn't they be up to speed? Shouldn't they, I mean, it feels like this is, they're missing the boat if they're, they're not seizing upon this because Trump certainly is right. The, yeah. the, 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 the campaign they're going to run on social media, Trump is, is going to be much, much bigger than the 2016 one. And that one was record setting. Yeah, they're behind a thousand percent, right? I mean, and, and to be quite honest, running against Sanders, he should have already been doing all of this, right? Um, even though he didn't think he'd have to do it to the same extent. So a lot of what his campaign staffers and some of the Obama, previous Obama staffers have said, he's never going to, for like original content on his own channels, he's not going to get the kind of traction that Trump gets, right? Mm. So really what he should be doing is focusing not as much on original content in his channels, but really like reaching out to people with built-in audiences, podcasts and YouTube channels. And he hasn't really done much of that yet. Um, and I think part of it is that he doesn't understand it maybe. And without an, a big digital staff to explain him how it works, he's going on TV and he's doing some internet ads from his basement and he's doing these virtual rope lines. But that's not how you're going to run win a race regardless of a quarantine, but definitely not right now. I mean, isn't it a kind of a, a I, I totally agree. Like, I don't think he's ever going to be Trump at his own game in terms of, of social media presence uh, and just verboseness. But at the same time, when he does go on these shows or does do a podcast, which it seems like he's more forced to than anything um, by his team at the moment, based on what's said, he's not the greatest. I mean, he's never been a, a great interview. And, and you know, like, like you said earlier, when he was doing the interview with uh, with Charlemagne, it was that gaffe that. I, I, is still being talked about right now. As much as I think that I, he has to do these things, I think it's it's also, it, at least initially, it's to some extent a, a detriment to his campaign as it exists right now. So I don't know how you find a happy middle ground between the two, to be honest. Yeah, I think, no, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. Phil, were you going to say something? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I was, it is really interesting in that, uh, um, I mean, it seems like this election is going to come down to it's it's going to be a referendum on Trump ultimately, right? And so, in some ways, I, I know that it's important to have a presence out there, and it's a little surprising. Like watching Biden in New Hampshire when he was here for the primaries, he felt of a different era. Like he felt sort of leaden foot. I mean, it was other people had dynamic campaigns, and he came in and used teleprompters and whatever. But the whole idea of a long primary process is that you figure all that stuff out before we get to this point. Um, but I wonder if 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 Biden's best approach at this point isn't just sort of what he's been doing, which is just not being all that visible, popping up every now and then 
with a retort on Twitter or whatever, a comment about Trump, because I mean, Trump is, I mean, it is a, it is a referendum on Trump and Trump is putting enough stuff out there right now. He's flailing right now. I, I wonder if sort of laying low isn't smart or whether it's intentional or not. I wonder if it's not a good strategy. Well, I think that's the balance to strike is exactly that, is that this is what part of the strategy so far is to do nothing and let Trump take take his own ship down. Right. Because um, that seems to be the smartest move, especially because in these virtual situations, he's not great. But at some point, it could look like a void. Right. It could look like he's literally disappeared. Um, and it. I think for younger voters that he's having a hard time with, even though they don't go out and vote the way that other demographics of voters do, um, they want to see somebody sort of taking Trump to task, right? And this is one of the things that the digital director and some of the, the campaign staffers are saying is that when they do put content on social media, the thing that gets the most views and likes and shares is where they're like throat punching Trump, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't work for everybody because he also is known to being for being so compassionate, so empathetic and having those personal connections. Right. So how do you find the balance of of being out there, but not too much being hostile to Trump because people want to see it, but also reminding people that you have compassion and not doing too much of that so that your words can be used against you because he's a gas machine. How, what's the timing normally of naming? Uh, do people usually wait till the till the or close to the convention to name a VP? Because that seems like a perfect VP ask. role mm -hmm. to have a, a, like an attack dog VP out, candidate out there doing that. And Biden's just the nice, you know, grandfatherly, yeah, uh, yeah safe choice. It's sad that that's the that that's the, what we rely on. It would be great if you had a lead candidate who could be sort of dynamic and doing all of that. But well, this is the John McCain Sarah Palin team, right? This was he could still worked out well for them. It worked out really well for them, right? But it's exactly the same thing when people were yelling anti-Muslim and you know and and xenophobic things about Obama. It was Palin who was the one doubling down, and McCain that was the one that was like, "Hold on a second. So the VP pick usually comes right before the convention, although he's teasing that it's going to come a little earlier to pick up some momentum. And we know he needs to pick. We know he's picking a woman because he said so. But he's got all these deficiencies he needs to make up for, and age is one of them. So if he can pick a young VP candidate who is social media savvy and who can be an attack dog, this is where having a woman of color as the VP gets tricky for having an attack dog. Mm -hmm. um, then we can see where he can find a better balance of those things we were just talking about. It's interesting because you hear all sorts of conversation about Amy Klobuchar, that she seems to be apparently he's reached out to her, but she doesn't strike me as that candidate, right? She is not the one who can go on the attack. She's, I mean, I, I think she is infinitely qualified. I think she's really smart, but she's not good on the campaign trail. Um, there's a sort of uh, awkwardness to her tax, right? It's, it's interesting. She may be a great vice president in that, you know, she might be a good candidate four years from now, but I don't know. Do you think she's going to fill, would she fill that role that he needs in the campaign? No, I think, you know, if he wants to win Minnesota, fine, but <laughs> he doesn't, but he might not need to. Right. And I don't, yeah. he doesn't, you know, the things he needs, he needs someone younger, he needs someone more progressive and he needs someone that could help him in states where he might um, be teetering or a new state he could pick up and win. And she doesn't fill any of those boxes. She doesn't get anyone extra excited to vote for him or mobilized to vote for him, even though she's fantastic. Mm -hmm. It's, I would make an argument that she's not a smart choice for VP, not because she's not qualified. It wouldn't be great, but, but for the, all the other political reasons.
do those things actually end up mattering in the long run? Does does a uh, I mean I know that that's the the sort of you know accepted logic that you pick a southern you know somebody from a state that you don't you don't currently have or a minority or but I, I, is there any evidence that that actually affects people's choice come November? No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right? No, it it definitely doesn't. But but the only thing I would say, the caveat I would add is that I think this is different. I think that this election is different. Because there is an opportunity for Biden to pick someone who can mobilize voters who need the most mobilization, who could tip the scales, right? And so that's where I think, you know, women already vote more than men and women are already more democratic than men. So just picking a woman doesn't extra mobilize women because they already go more. This is where picking a woman of color, I think, is is. There are so many pros and cons, and I hate even having that conversation. But if he does pick a woman of color, depending on who she is, that could mobilize the black community in a way close to the way they were in 08 and 12 that Hillary Clinton didn't expected to get and did not get. I, just as you were talking, I was thinking about it. And I, I, initially, I was thinking Klobuchar is not a good choice. But I, you're right that that women in the, this election are going to play a huge role. And Amy, Amy Klobuchar is the exact opposite of Trump in so many ways, right? Uh, and there might be an appeal to moderate women who say, I traditionally vote Republican, but I'm so upset by Trump. Does she have an appeal there? Uh, well, maybe. I think yeah. maybe, and especially because I was <laughs> I was struck by this, <laughs> this quote today from one of his staffers that talked about the importance of the suburban Facebook empathy mom. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's me, first of all. So hold on. And also, this is like the new version of the soccer mom and the NASCAR mom, right? It's like the I hate this word, the courting of the female voters to try to get blah, fucking blah. I hate all of that stuff. The ladies. You got to win the ladies. <laughs> got to, I got my shirt on today, too. But this is where, to your point, Bill, that Klobuchar is interesting because she evokes some of that in this, you know, suburban Facebook empathy mom. But depending on if these are like more ex-urban moms, this is where they may want to see somebody that's a little more progressive and maybe a person of color, right? So it's like, how do you find that balance? Um, This is one of the trickiest VP choices I've seen in a long, long time. So, I I mean, the question that I have, especially over the the past, uh, you know, the past couple months with with COVID and everything, um, it seems like a lot of potential candidates and potentially good choices have, at least in the eyes of a, a fair percentage of of voters in relatively progressive states, especially if you're talking about Michigan with Whitmer or anything else that, that this event has kind of muddied the waters about their policy stances and how they operate on a governmental level. And their their um, just a, a, a effectiveness in a crisis. Has that limited his choices or is this bolstered more of a, a, a progressive standpoint that a VP should have for this particular situation? I mean, I think that's a great question. I, the, the one thing I thought of immediately when you asked that was this is where Stacey Abrams has a bit of an edge because she doesn't hold any office right now. Sure. So, and she's so big on voting rights and she's actually teamed up with Klobuchar and Kamala Harris to try to push for mail-in balloting. And so I, I think Whitmer, this is to your point, Nick, especially because one of the Senate races in Michigan is a little bit back and forth right now is that she's not as popular as she was in some circles, but more now in others. Mm -hmm. So, Bill, Bill, you had a face on you like you were going to. 
Me? Like, no. Yeah, he was like, he was like, you're right. Bill, right? That was just me pretending to listen to you. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was, I was, I was thinking about whether there are. I was actually thinking whether there are there any historical examples of what's happening in 2020 because, it you know you mentioned McCain and Palin, but this feels you're right that they're the VP choice is similar, but in many ways it, it's very very different. And I, I can't think of another example of a candidate who's as divisive as Trump is, right? I mean, even George W. Bush in the, during his, his second campaign wasn't as as loved and hated as much as Trump is. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to find historical parallels to kind of think about, you know, both the VP choice, but also like what's going to play out. I mean, I don't know. Can you think of any, are there really, really any good parallels to, to learn from? Not in, not in contemporary presidential elections that I can think yeah. of. Now, if I went real far back, Sure. I can remember. I still, I mean, I can't think of anything. There's so many things about this cycle right now, these candidates, this situation that seems so different. Yeah. So the, the, the choice of, of a, a running mate, it fits into this larger sort of choice of direction of the campaign because Biden, I mean, the, it hasn't been big in the news, but he's reached out a lot to Bernie and to progressive elements of the party. But I don't maybe maybe this isn't unique, but it seems unique to me or relatively unique that there are lots of different directions that Biden could go because there's the progressive base that you want to try to win over the Bernie base. But you also have all these disaffected moderates that are, you know, maybe that are burned out on the on on Trump that are unhappy with that. You have, you know, women, you've got you've got uh, minorities, you have all these different directions where I know that oftentimes you're trying to build a coalition, but it feels like the the options for potential coalitions are really expansive for Biden. I, I don't I, do you have a sense of which way he's going or do you have a feel for how he's what he's trying to put together or what he's trying to build? So yes and no isn't that a great answer when you get that one. Um so there's there's so Perry Bacon wrote about this in 538 today actually or yesterday I think about how Biden could be the most liberal president we've ever had. And I take I, now he's not wrong but I take a little issue with it because it's not Biden specific it's the direction the party has gone since 16 specifically although really since before then, right? And so this is what we expect this is what Democrats expect their party to look like now. So him saying I'm going to have a woman VP, I'm going to appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court, right? Like talking about systemic inequity, like these are words and phrases and things that now the party expects. And so I think just the fact that he's a Democrat and has really owned his whole career of being a Democrat, what we think that party label means is more progressive than it used to be, even without like a purposeful or conscious transition, right? So I don't think that he's he has to put together a progressive coalition. Um, and I will say that, especially because you look at some of the, the polls more recently to see how he's doing with certain kinds of voters. So he's he is winning older voters in swing states, especially Florida. So he's now either neck and neck or winning 65 plus. So Trump has dropped 14 points with 65 and older voters. That's cr- crazy town, right? So this throwaway, oh, that sounded bad. Not throwaway group of voters because they're throwaway, but for Democrats, right? Now they're in play in swing states. He's winning with um, non-college educated white men. Not winning everywhere, but in some swing states he is. That was why Clinton lost, right? right? Um, He is winning with rural voters, especially in places like Michigan. So all these places, not all rural voters, but in some places, all these places where Trump ran away with, he's just 
by virtue of who he is and what he has represented for so long and where the party is going and then comparing it to Trump is just like doing better with everybody. She keeps staying in his basement. This basement strategy is working. So so clarify something for me then, which is that you continue to, I continue to see headlines and and data and stuff that supports that this is potentially still a a race that comes down to a couple of states, but it feels like the economy in shambles, the, the, you know, if those, those, you named groups that are essential to Trump to win. Like on one hand, it feels like this is going to be a, was it 80 or 84? That was the massive landslide. Was it 84? Um, It feels like it's going to be another 84. In another way, it feels like it's going to be another, you know, 2016, right? Where it's going to be this eked out thing. How do you reconcile those two? Are we we closer to one than the other? Or is it just so much is still in flux that we don't know at this point? So I think the the latter and mainly because we have no idea how we're going to be voting in November. Right. So like, yes, he's winning with older voters in swing states, but are they going to be able to vote? Where are they going to be able to vote? Even though Trump said there'll never be mail-in voting, it is a state by state decision. That is not a federal government decision. So if states decide that they're going to do it, there's nothing he can really do to stop it. I mean, he could try an executive order. There's some things the court would have to get involved, but there's so much uncertainty of how we're going to vote whether the GDP will rebound even to zero neutral, right? He still looks like he's going to have an electoral college loss if his net approval is low. So I think there's just so much uncertainty to say it's going to be close or not, which are the two things you said. I just don't, I don't know yet. It it feels like it should be, I mean, it feels like there's so many things going against Trump, the economy, the death toll from coronavirus, I mean, his behavior, I mean, just like this kind of loss, right? Um, But I think we're so used to everything being so narrow. Um, Yeah, go ahead. And we all, I mean, so many people felt certain last time, right? It, it yeah. was like it was presented as this thing that was likely an outcome. And that's happened a few times now. And so I, I think, yeah, it's it's one of those where the more certain someone is about the outcome, the more skepticism you should have about their opinion, it seems like. And, and you know, <laughs> six months from now, after the election is over, when we've seen the results, we're going to look back and say, of course, right? I mean, right. if Trump just gets lambasted you say yeah absolutely all these factors against him and i mean one thing we really haven't talked about he's running a terrible campaign right now uh i mean not not the campaign itself i think he's got good people to i mean i don't agree with what they're doing but they're smart uh he's just sabotaging it left and right i mean his twitter behavior all of this stuff is even people who might be predisposed to vote for a republican have to be struggling with some of his antics of late I mean, we again, we built a podcast around this entire thing. We would not have have this show for four years without his behavior. And realistically, to some extent, I think people have gotten used to it again, like we've talked about on on dozens of occasions. I think that as we're talking about this being an unprecedented time in history, you have to think about this as an unprecedented election that could have unprecedented outcomes. And I think that the narratives that are going to get presented over the next few months are going to be, it's going to be something that we've never seen before. You can't discount the way that certain states have have uh, affected policies in terms of uh, the coronavirus. You can't discount his narrative that China is responsible for this. You can't discount that there is at least some sort of rebound in the economy to show that it was strong beforehand and it's going to be strong, even if it's not there, you know, in three or four uh, months from now. And then on top of that, as much as his Twitter antics are a factor, there's a, a growing discontent with 
corporate media and the way that's presented and a lot of voices that continue to uh, kind of, uh, uh, what's the right term, um, grow in, in uh, magnitude and volume on social media that present an opinion that more and more people see compared to the corporate media. Um, again, and we were, we're at some point going to talk about red pill and blue pill and, and how that factors into the whole thing. Um, that'll be for another show, but this is, this is, I think this is a different animal and we can certainly look at the models and, and we need to, to try and figure this out and have some sort of semblance about what this is supposed to be. But I, this is, this is a weird animal. And I, I, yeah, I, I, <laughs> the fascination with prediction is a weird thing to me in that, I mean, for political scientists, it's not all that weird, but as a society, we've latched onto it so much that like knowing the outcome today is like more important than the actual process in a, in a weird way, all the, po the attention to polling and whatnot. I think you're exactly right, Nick. I mean, the, the idea of we're six months away and I mean, the last six months shows you how much stuff can change in six months. Right. And I think you're right that it could be that the economy is in shame. It could be not just that the economy is improving, but with like improving with record numbers, right? If it bounces mm -hmm. back after, you know, we're at what, 15 to 20 percent unemployment and all these, if it bounces back hard, it could be that Trump goes in in November with these like massive, you know, uh, economic numbers. It, it, I think it's just it's just hard to say what's what what's going to happen in the next mm -hmm. few months. So real quick conspiracy theory talk. Do you think there's <laughs> Suzanne? Um, <laughs> oh, it's to me. Okay, great. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, just just because it's it's a question that we've kind of we've talked about briefly on a few different episodes. Do you think there's any chance that the Democrats pull Biden prior to the convention or even after the convention based on his behavior or the potential for a better contender prior to the election. <laughs> no, no chance in hell. Do I have to even say word, a word? <laughs> and I also, like, <laughs> I had to ask. The reason that I, I can't. it would make you angry. <laughs> you know, there's, there's nothing that I've seen. Let me say this differently. Other than like Uncle Joe gaff machine, which sure. we all know and love, I guess. Um, there's nothing about him as a candidate in terms of the way we've already talked about the coalition he's building across and stuff that makes him not a good candidate for the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Right now, there are things about him that are, to use a phrase that's on the mug, deeply problematic. Right. <laughs> and I'm not going to push those away. But who who else would it be? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I have no idea. Right. I really no. Realistically, I I, I don't know. It, it's 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 a it, it's a theory that's out there. And realistically, it's not necessarily because he's not the maybe not the right candidate, but a good candidate um, yeah. in norm under normal circumstances. Mm -hmm. Again, I I think this is an unprecedented moment, and the uh, this is again, alternative media kind of presents a, a narrative that's out there that does tend to gain traction, whether it should or not, um, based off of gaffes and certain behaviors and things like that, that, uh, again, present him in a light that isn't 100% true, but has a kernel of truth to oh, it. Oh, I um, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't necessarily know who would be a better candidate, but 
it's something that's out there. Your whole your whole conspiracy theory, Nick, it, it hinges on the fact or the idea that the Democratic Party could recognize who a good candidate is. That's a valid point. You know what? Forget I even mentioned this. <laughs> One other, you know, I know we got to move on. One other thing, though, I think, Phil, I think this is where the comparative perspective is useful. You know, the United States, we haven't had I, this is a more recent thing of drifting to really old candidates. But when you think about around the world, there are a lot of countries, especially when you think about prime ministers. I think about Italy. Italy is elected a lot of really, really old candidates over the years. And and some of them have been disasters, but some of them have managed to like stay out of the way and then are regarded as these these grandfatherly figures, as you mentioned, who ushered the country through hard times. So it's it's possible that by just staying out of the way, Biden could be remembered as a could be elected and remembered as a good president. Can we just have the uh, Biden insult bot in his place? I think that would be more appropriate. I love that insult bot. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, should we, should yeah. we talk about beers? Oh, go ahead, Phil. Yeah. No, I, I was. I, it's, we should move on to beers. I could. You. You. You poked the the comparativist in me, and I. I could go on yeah. for too long. So <laughs> no, no, I want, I, I, that's why I poked. Give me a little. No, bit. no. I mean, I, you're. <laughs> I think you're right. I mean, it's the difference between a parliamentary system and a presidential system, right? So we we have voters going out and directly electing people, which is where we want charismatic and all of this other stuff, which. Is sometimes good, but at other times, it's not the best leader that people are, are drawn to. Whereas a parliamentary system, if you want to become prime minister, you spend your whole career working your way up through the party. And so they're not always the most charismatic or dynamic, but they're recognized as leader. I mean, Nancy Pelosi would be an example, right, who, who is, would be sort of a prime ministerial type candidate in the U.S. system if we were parliamentary. She's not particularly popular. She's awfully divisive in lots of ways, but she's good at coordinating action from her party and coordinate, you know, and, and so that you're right, you get different types of leaders. And, and in, in some situations, it works out really beautifully, right? Because you get someone who is sort of an elder statesman who is there, not necessarily because of their policy ideas. The party has its ideas, right? It has other people around them. They're there because of the leadership role that they play or the coordinating role. Which is, in, you know, argumental. Like I could argue that that's a better way of selecting a leader than than sort of a popularity contest across the country. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad I poked. That was really thoughtful. <laughs> <laughs> now, why don't you transition to talk about your beer? <laughs> All right. So uh, I ha- I am drinking a beer. So there's a there's a relatively new brewery here in Keene called Branch and Blade. I, it's a couple of years old at this point. Um, and I went down and picked up some food a couple of days ago and got a few beers as well. So this is their Kicking, Screaming and Punching. It's really kind of a nice, colorful can. I like it a lot. Um it's punchin, which is, I guess, a barrel that you age beer in. So this is a, or bear, or you age whatever in. I assume you can age other things in it. But this is a oak-aged pilsner. Um, I've never had an oak-aged pilsner before. Um, and I didn't know what to expect. But I, 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 I was a little skeptical at first. And it's grown on me as I drank it. It's, like, got these subtleties to it. There's, like, elements of, like, tartness to it. You can taste the oak, but it's not overwhelming. I don't, there's a lot of oak-aged beers that I am not, a fan of you can taste the oak but it's like really subtle and the fact that it's like a pilsner means it's fairly relatively light um so like it's like 90 here in Keene today it's hot i know that people you know in, i'm from texas originally so 90s like a november you know wednesday or whatever but here in new hampshire that's hot um and so it's it's a really nice kind of refreshing light-ish beer but but with some complexity to it i i really enjoyed it that's good suzanne what do you got 
<laughs> well, um, given that we're not in person when usually Bill just like throws a beer at me. <laughs> and that's what I like. And so it's something light and Hefeweizen-y and whatever. I was like, okay, well, we don't really have beer at our house because we're more cocktail drinkers. But um, in typical, what did I call it? A Facebook mom empathy form. I'm drinking a new iteration of White Claw or Truly. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> Crest. Uh, it's an al- a premium alcohol seltzer. Okay, so it's basically White Claw or Truly. But here's the difference. Because I'm sure you're so fascinated by this. <laughs> yes. um, so I have recently discovered how much I like gin. Like a botanical flowery gin, which I didn't realize I liked. So like a botanical gin with some citrus and a and some kind of like herb or whatever is delicious. Well, so all of these presses are fruit and then some kind of like herb or spice, right? Mm-hmm. So it reminds me of like a refreshing gin cocktail. So this is grapefruit and cardamom. I have to be honest, I have no idea what cardamom is. It's like but a button-up like, sweater, I think. Yeah, it sounds right. <laughs> It's what Bill wears when he putters around the house. Um, That's right. But whatever it is, it's delicious. And it reminds me in some ways of like a summer shandy because it's the grapefruit and it's really light. So um, that's my press. I was going to sarcastically ask you about the nuances in your malt beverage, but then you actually went into the nuance. (laughs) I've learned anything from being with you guys. Like no matter how much you make fun of me for what I drink, I'm going to bring all the complexity. Sounds pretty good. Not going to lie. There was a time in grad school uh, when Phil and I really enjoyed dirty martinis. And remember, Phil, this is when they had like dirty martini bars were big in in Colorado, Denver. Um, It was early 70s. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, <laughs> uh, Nick! Nick, you said you were having something something new. That's good. Yeah, so I am having a uh, a two brothers wizard staff, um, which we've had lots of of two brothers stuff uh, previously, and uh, you know we've been going there for for years. And their original stuff is really good. And we've talked about how some of their later iterations weren't didn't quite hit those same notes. This is really really good. It's uh it's an IPA, um, but it's. It's got a decent amount of sweetness to it. It has tropical notes, and it's really smooth and and effervescent. Um, I I was kind of shocked how much I liked it. I I had picked it up to enjoy this past weekend over Memorial Day and didn't get a chance to have one. And now I'm just going to go through them all myself, and you know, sit sit here in my office, and you know, just just talk to you guys and various other people on Zoom. Uh, but it's yeah, it's it's very good. I would highly recommend. So I am enjoying a uh, Wake Up Dead Russian Imperial Stout from Left Hand Brewing out of Colorado. Yes. Left Hand Brewing is just fantastic. It's been around a long time. Really, really good. And this is my saying goodbye to winter and spring. It's my final Russian Imperial Stout of the season. So I wanted to go out with a good one. And I mean, Left Hand just doesn't disappoint. I I love Russian Imperial Stouts. And this Nitro one is so smooth. Like, I mean, they're usually a smooth beer, but this is fantastic. Little hints of cocoa. Um, oh, yeah, it's 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 really, really good. Mm. Uh, and yeah, the nitro just just again, it's it's nitro similar to like a Guinness dynamic, but really tasty. Mm. Um, yeah. So now I'm now I'm ready for my grapefruit shandies. Cardamom <laughs> press. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and they have lemon lime lemongrass. Oh, and interesting. Food? That's what my sister yeah. drinks. She's live watching us right now. She's got a lime lemongrass. I'm telling you, you should try it. I'm going to go pick some of those up and I'm not going to tell you about it. I'm trying that. (laughs) Uh, Speed rounds? Yeah, you got to do the untap thing, Nick. 
Oh yeah, I, yeah whatever you know. It's a thing. Um, <laughs> hi guys. Uh, yeah, that other thing that we do, we try beers on this podcast. So if you want to check out the beers that we have, uh, download uh, Untapped on iOS or Android. Look for Barstool Politics on there, and you will find all of our reviews. Now we're ready for speed round. Thank you. <laughs> Good save. On, yeah, on Monday, <laughs> on Monday, President Trump threatened to yank the Republican National Convention from Charlotte, North Carolina, where it is scheduled to be held in August, accusing the state's Democratic governor of being a shutdown in a shutdown mood uh, that could prevent a fully attended event. Despite Trump's insistence, it's not clear that either party will be able to hold the traditional convention with thousands of people in attendance. This raises an interesting question of whether conventions are even necessary anymore. There once was a time when the party conventions were absolutely necessary, but it's not clear that's the case anymore. They do put together the party platform, but as we've seen from Trump, it's not clear that those have any impact on the president's actual agenda. So, Suzanne, do conventions continue to serve a purpose, or should we ditch them like Phil's old VCR? Oh, man. You got rid of your VCR? Why? How was I? So... No, is the short answer, but like, I can't stop there. No, conventions don't really matter anymore, right? I mean, it's, there are, there's some business behind the scenes that does matter, right? State and national party leaders and elected officials and pre, they get to rub elbows and talk about stuff. And, you know, they do talk about the setting the platform and that's not unimportant, but what the convention, that what it really, the purpose it serves is no longer a purpose that is necessary because unless you actually are going to end up with a brokered convention, not just like a threat of one over the past two cycles, it's just a giant party that nobody watches, mm-hmm. right? I mean, viewership is down. The networks are covering it less and less. Yes, it's an opportunity for up and coming party, party stars to speak and get some national recognition like we saw with you know Obama in 04, but, you know, to... I guess I'll just say personally to hold it for the sake of tradition and risk lives because most of the people that are going to be there, let's face it, are old, right? It it doesn't serve enough of a purpose. Even the convention bump that te- that technically happens in the polls that we use for some forecasting, I, I just don't see it being being necessary the way it used to be. So I I think of the convention as being this big. Uh, this is just me, I guess. You know, not 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 stepping out of my own perspective because I'm a political scientist and a nerd. I like, these are like, these are big events to me. And I sort of assume that there, that viewership and, you know, it's, it's a big thing. It's like the Super Bowl of politics, but it's, you're saying it's not, nobody cares. Nobody tunes in. No, the viewership is down. And of the last two convention, the last, I guess, eight years, I guess it would have been viewership is down so much that the networks used to cover every night for like four hours. They cover like one to two hours, two to three nights. And the rest of it you can see on cable news because nobody's paying attention. Um, And they should be. I agree with you. It's I mean, every four years we political scientists and all these we get it. You know, we get our one shot at this, like you said, like our Super Bowl. But it's it's not a ratings machine. I guess unless Trump does it and then it's a ratings machine. But, but you know, these to talk about like the, the bump that came out of the convention. But that doesn't I mean, that's a couple days right now where the, there's the bump and everybody goes back. So it doesn't really even necessarily help the candidate, uh, especially with somebody like Biden, whose name is already out there. Right. And but, the, now that I was just quickly just say now that the Democrats pushed the convention a month, this must be July. Now it's August. It's the weekend before the Republican convention. So whatever bump Biden might get is immediately cut off by then Trump having the national audience and having his convention. Um, and so it's it's not a significant um, and even ca- former candidates like Dukakis was um, uh, was interviewed recently and said, like, it kind of helped to give me a little momentum, but it was so short lived that it didn't really do much. Mm-hmm. 
My question is, if they don't hold the conventions, how are they going to present a new candidate after they sideline Biden? I'm really <laughs> curious about that. They're going to roll them out and go <laughs> I have to think, you know, I mean, even thinking about like, you know, I, I think Trump wants this because he needs I mean, he's he's desperately missing the the rallies. Right. So he wants this because this is he's I guess he's not as good in the formal structure, but he he needs lots of people. This this is what he personally needs. I don't know if the Republican needs it. I think Biden is safer in his basement. Um, this feels like an easy transition to move away from these conventions and then four years from now to to revisit whether we need to come back. But I mean, isn't this kind of one of those, uh, again, like not to continually look at this through a, a sociological, just current COVID kind of lens, but I think this is a big kind of firebrand moment for the the, the parties. I think that, to your point, uh, Bill, that Trump misses that 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 rally kind of atmosphere. I think that if you do kind of push forward with this in what is at least presented as a, a safe fashion or a slightly limited fashion and show yourself to be the candidate that is trying to get people back out there and interested in the, the normality of, of political life and keeping the system going, I think that does something. I think from a positive and negative perspective, but I think it solidifies the Republican base. He can't do that, Nick. He of cannot course he can do that. <laughs> of course he can do that. And he'll, he'll be out there two minutes and he'll be attacking some grandmother, right? You know, I mean, he's just right. You know. What did I say about solidifying the base? Were you not listening? But <laughs> <laughs> then it's the juxtaposition of him like screaming and sweating and spitting all over the convention floor, and then Biden in a mask in his basement, right? So then yeah. to your point, Nick, it really I've seen the conventions is exactly what you're talking about. It is it is exacerbated what we're already seeing about this very stark partisan divide over how serious COVID is, how many precautions we need. Um, and maybe it'll make Trump more manly, maybe pre- be perceived to be more manly, which we'll discuss, I guess. But I think it just makes me stupid. That's a pretty good, I mean, that's a pretty good summation of this race, right? Biden wearing a mask in his basement and Trump yelling from a podium in a crowded room during the pandemic. Like, I, like it's if 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 conventions are intended to illustrate what the parties sort of represent and, you know, make that simple for voters, that seems to work. You already got it. And there's an audience for each. Right. I mean, you're seeing this. I, I am stunned that that masks could become a political thing, but they have. Right. I mean, they absolutely have in ways that sort of are just mind boggling that that that's where we are at as a as a country where we're going to pick a mask to be a a partisan issue that's why this race will still be down to under two percentage points i would almost guarantee it at this point So I know the bell rang, but I want to ask a question before we move on. Last week, we talked about the you know, faithless electors and, and you know whether it matters and whether we should do away with the whole antiquated thing. So, I, Suzanne, my question is, should these so you were saying conventions don't matter. Should they matter? Should they play a role where 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 people can actually come together and debate like this buffer between the voters and you know the, the sort of primary process and who the party puts forward? Or should they just be done away with and made the make it a more sort of directly democratic thing where whatever people vote for, that's the that's what they get. Should should we want some sort of in between step? Well, I I mean, I think as a political scientist, my answer is no. Right. I mean, we know why we had the conventions. It was a way to same thing. Reason we have the electoral college. It's a way to 
um, as like a stopgap, right, for someone being nominated or somebody to potentially win that we think, you know, that the elites and party leaders don't think is equipped to do the job. And we, you know, it's sort of this next iteration of a smoke-filled room. And there's a reason we got rid of that, right, for transparency during the progressive era and putting government back to the hands of the people and all that's good. And so now if we were to kind of, I don't want to say go backwards, but if, if we had this sort of democratic process go through the primary and then we get to the convention and then these party elites and the, they make the decision that might look different than the democratic process that's been instituted, then I would make an argument that it delegitimizes our democracy and our electoral process even more than what we already have. So I, I'll, be, I'll, I, I'll be devil's advocate for a second as a comparativist, because the other argument would be that uh, uh, letting voters choose sort of party. So back to the parliamentary presidential thing, right? Like letting voters choose party leaders can be sort of, can be problematic, right? With a, when a party gets together and basically says, here are the values we stand for, and this is the person that represents them, the Democratic part comes in and that we say, here's, you know, Mary or Steve or whatever. And if you agree with our principles, vote for us. And if you right. don't, you know, not. And, and it actually allows, you know, it, it takes some of the heat of the sort of democratic process that you don't get necessarily as extreme of views or, um, you know, you get maybe some more nuanced and thought, you know, thoughtful p policy positions. Um, so I'm right. Right. You're right in a multi-party system. You're right in a PR, in a parliamentary, in a multi-party system. I think you're right. I think you're wrong when we look at the U.S. in a two-party system. That's a good place to finish. All right. <laughs> <laughs> the bell rang. Disagree? <laughs> so we got to move on to a really important topic. So people, it's time to determine whether Donald Trump is a manly man. Uh, this week, Tom Nichols, who is a conservative professor, we've talked about him before at the U.S. Naval War College. He wrote an article which he expressed some confusion as to why Trump's base finds him so manly. In particular, he notes, quote, since his first day as a presidential candidate, I have been baffled by one mystery in particular. Why do working class white men, the most reliable component of Donald Trump's base, support someone who is, by their own standards, the least masculine man ever to hold a presidency, unquote? He goes on to point out that Trump behaves in ways that many working class men could ridicule. Quote, he wears bronzer. He loves gold and gossip, is obsessed with his appearance, whines constantly, can't control his emotion, motions, watches daytime television, enjoys parades and interior decorating, and used to sell perfume, unquote. All of which raises the question of why working class men find Trump to be such a manly man. Phil, most people don't know that you coined the term metrosexual in the early 1990s. What's your take on Trump's manliness? I, I think this is the really kind of a fascinating point. Uh, Tom Nichols was today, he was, you know, engaging with different people about this topic as well. People who were asking him, like, how I, I guess he doesn't have military back service background. People were attacking him. How dare you have never served in the military challenge Trump? And he was pointing out like the the lack of self-awareness in that, right? That Trump also has never served. Like all the things that you think of as like the kind of, you know, uh, typical manly uh, attributes. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I think it's really fascinating. I, you and I had texted a little bit about this earlier this week. I, I mean, for me, I think my theory, and I have, this is just my theory, so who knows. Uh, but my theory is that as with so many things in American politics today, it's not so much about what you stand for, but what you're against, right? So like, like you know, the, the, the sort of um, 
negative partisanship, right? For I think for so many people, being a Republican is about hating Democrats as opposed to being a Republican or, you know, vice versa, right? I'm a Democrat because Republicans are stupid. And I feel like maybe that's this, the, what's playing out here, that, that it's, it's, it's more the attitude or the, the, you know, the approach to women, the approach to whatever else, the, you know, he's, he's just being his dickishness in general, right, is part of what makes him manly. So it's not like physical attributes or things he's done so much as policy positions that, that lead them to define him as manly. That's the only thing that I can sort of come around to. I don't know if that does that make does that does that yeah. sit well with any of you? So, yes, I think that's a huge part of it. And I, I would just I would also just add to it that it's the juxtaposition with Obama. Right. Obama was weak and he wasn't masculine. And so now there's a real man in the White House. Right. It's and, and some of this is the negative partisanship. I, I think, Phil, you're absolutely right. that That's a huge part of it. Um, and the treatment of women and all of that. I, the only thing I would add to it is that, you know, the 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 men in his base to which Nichols is referring without the bronzer look actually quite a bit like him, right? They're kind of camped and disheveled. They're maybe like have dad bod plus a few. Um, You're hitting and- a little close to home. <laughs> <laughs> and they scream and rant and rave and don't have to censor themselves. And so I think some of it is a reflection of like, oh, someone like me is in the White House. And that's what a real man is like. Oh, that's interesting. So there are some cl- there are some parallels that that Nichols didn't really necessarily highlight. Mm-hmm. Nick, hi. Perfectly <laughs> <laughs> quaffed beard. Oh God, no, no, this is a mess right now. Anyway, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have that taken care of too because I'm a manly man. I need someone to take care of that for me. Um, no, I, I think that you know the more you see articles like this. It just, from my perspective and the way that you hear people talk who come from the the uh, opposite point of view, that this is another example of the corporate media and uh, Democratic voters trying to start a fight about something that doesn't necessarily have any particular relevance. And it's childish, you know, high school gossip more than anything. And I think you're right, Phil, that a, a lot of what Republican voters look at our policy decisions and and to a a great extent, um, negative expression toward Democratic policies uh, more than anything. But, um, you know, like you were you were mentioning, Suzanne, um, as much as these people might be relatively close to uh trump in terms of physicality in terms of the way that they think trump is not necessarily anything like them he is an he's an avatar for a particular point of view and you don't need to be exactly like your your base or or you know your your primary voting block to to be a, a messenger more than anything and i think to some extent just as we saw in 2016 that some of these people as much as you think that they can say whatever they want and they spout and they, you know, don't have to censor themselves. A lot of what was centered around 2016 was people feeling like they had been censored for decades at that point. Um, And again, Trump was not one of them necessarily, but he was close enough to get their message across in an effective way that would get their policies pushed forward more than anybody else in recent history. So I don't know. I hate the corporate media. That's the be all end all. There's, there's, no, an, inter- 
There's an interesting parallel. I did just real quickly. There's an interesting parallel with like the evangelical or conservative Christian groups who who have found sort of, you know, the avatar, if you will, right? Like this person who sort of embodied, but it doesn't make any sense, right? Just like the that Donald Trump as manly, Donald Trump as like God's messenger is. It, it, there's no like. It, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance there. What were you going to say, Bill? Well, I think that's absolutely right, right? It is. You know, I think both Nick, you're right as well. This is a. It's a full manliness, right? It's not. If if these guys met Trump at a bar and he wasn't president, I think they would make fun of him, right? I mean, you know, just like the, the way he dresses, that he wears lifts in his shoes. There's a lot of people pointed out that he stands like a centaur. You know, he's like sort of forward. Um, you know, I mean, there's all these things where you would say he is not he is not your traditional blue collar manly man. The guy who gets up, you know, grabs his lunch pail and goes to work for eight to ten hours a day. He's not that right. He's he's a very different kind of man. Um, yeah. So, again, this disconnect between who he portrays himself in as uh, and what he really is, is, is it's really fascinating. So here's here's I guess I'll I'll counter, I'll counter that. And yeah. if if an average Republican voter met him in a bar, he was still rich and he talked like they do. Do you think that would make a difference? Not because of his physicality, but because yeah. of what he's saying and how he says it. And this is an important distinction, Nick, right? They, I, I, you're spot on. I think there there would be things about what he says that people would be pulled to, especially blue collar, white working class voters. Like the ideology would appeal to him, his immigration views, you know, his views on, on, on America first, all of that stuff would appeal. But I think that's different from him as a man, right? And we've kind of conflated those two variables, right? You know, we agree with Trump ideologically. Um, even though he's not a manly man, but we're going to make him into a manly man. I mean, this last weekend for Memorial Day, they had these, the, the White House tweeted out this picture of, of, you know, bikers riding around the White House and Trump is like cheering them on and they're playing ACDC in the background. It was messed up, Nick, right? Because that sounds Trump great. Not, what the hell are you Trump talking would, Trump would shit Trump his pants if it happened in real life. <laughs> Trump would fall off on a motorcycle. He's never listened to ACDC. I mean, none of these things are Trump. Um, so I don't know. That's why I think, that, again, this is a really fascinating issue. I, I just really quick what I was yeah. just thinking, Bill, as you were talking about like lifts in, lifts in his shoes and his posture and all of that is that, you know, I think we all know Trump well enough to know deep in his core, he is just a ridiculously insecure man, right? Person, but man, right? And so the way that he postures and puffs and the things that he does to try to overcompensate for that in that inferiority, he feels the insecurity he feels. I actually think that resonates to the white working class male voters who may feel exactly the same way. That's a good point. Yeah. This is a hell of a topic. I'm glad I put this one in. I like this one. Manly man. I also hate that we're talking about masculinity in this way, but that's for a separate conversation. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's talk about the Senate. The Republicans headed into this election cycle as heavy favorites to keep their Senate majority. Uh, the lineup of elections were largely in red tinted states with GOP incumbents, incumbents, big favorites. Yet as the coronavirus has spread and the economy has, economy has tanked, some Republicans are getting very, very nervous. Suzanne, what's your sense of whether the Senate is at play and what state should our listeners be focusing on? So, oh, I was going to talk before the bell. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no, no, <it's> okay. <laughs> so for the reasons you said, Bill, already, we're looking at it like differently from 18, where it wasn't favorable towards the Democrats. It was more favorable towards the Republicans. We see a flip with the amount of seats they have to um, protect. So if we look at the breakdown of the 12 Democratic seats up and the 23 Republican seats up, um, 
we look at like the solid ones, the leaning ones, the likely ones, the toss up ones, and kind of do a comparison if you look at the Cook Partisan Value Index and see the Cook Report. Um, the Democrats have a slight advantage in retaining compared to Democrats when you look at the distribution of how safe the seats are, except for Doug Jones in Alabama, who won the special election um, when Jeff Sessions was uh, was in the White House. And so um, I think everyone's expecting, you know, for him to retain his seat is probably pretty unlikely. So what we'd be looking at, at then is the Democrats would need five seats to take the majority because they need the strict 51 since they can't, the vice president isn't a tiebreaker for them. So I'm looking at five, six races right now. So I'm looking at Colorado and not just because of you, Bill, but I'm looking at Colorado where Cory Gardner's running against Hickenlooper. This is a very tight race. And um, the expectation right now is Hickenlooper is probably going to win. But so much of this depends on down ballot effects, like who turns out for Trump and Biden is going to affect all of these Senate races. These down ballot effects are going to be huge. Um, I'm watching North Carolina with Tom Tillis. So North Carolina has been an interesting state. Obama won it in 08 for the first time since 76. Went back to Republicans in um, in 2012, and then you know Trump retained it. But with the expansion of the suburbs, we're seeing a blue some blue movement in North Carolina and some of the state level races. So I'm looking at Tillis um, potentially losing his seat. Martha McSally in Arizona, right, who was appointed to replace John McCain and is running for her first reelection, is running against Gabby Gifford's husband Mark Kelly, the astronaut. I, I think this is a really good chance for the Democrats to pick up a seat. There might be two Democratic senators from Arizona. That is crazy. Wouldn't that be insane? Yeah. I know. I know. He's an astronaut, Phil. He's an astronaut. Oh, no. I, I think it's likely, but it's Arizona, too. Like that's, yeah. yeah. You know, astronauts are un-American. Belt, right? I don't even know why we're talking about it. <laughs> this is the thing about the Sun Belt. We've talked about the Rust Belt so much, but really we should be focusing, particularly for the Electoral College, on the Sun Belt, which is, again, another conversation. Um I'm watching Kentucky. Mitch McConnell is 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 defending his seat against Amy McGrath, who ran for a ho- the House in 2018 and almost won. She's a fighter pilot. She's super well qualified, really well funded. You know, everyone, Larry Sabato and Crystal Ball and Cook is saying it's a likely R, but the polls are closer than they should be. And with down ballot effects, I'm watching Kentucky. I think it's really interesting. Hmm. And lastly, I'll say I'm watching Iowa with Joni Ernst. Um, you know, she's, if y'all remember when she ran first time, she was the one who was, had a shotgun talking about killing pigs and making Democrats squeal, um, talking about masculinity. Um, she's her percent, her approval percent has dropped nine points. She is not popular. And if we look at how Iowa, the house districts broke in 18, every house district, except for Steve Kings in Iowa is now democratic. So I'm looking at Iowa as well. That's so. It's as Phil pointed out. There's some interesting states that you wouldn't expect to see Democrats picking up a Senate seat doing well. Ah. Well, and there are several others that are like I. I think uh, like the ones you left out that seem interesting to me. Maine, right? So Susan Collins is. uh, But then on the flip side, also, what what's the story in or what's the chance that I mean Democrats have to defend some places too, like Alabama, right, where Doug Jones is, uh, you know, and going to run against. One of two fairly high profile people, right? Jeff Sessions or uh, what's his name? Tommy Tuberville, right? Um, what are the like? So how do those fit in as well? So if we if we look at let's say that the Democrats retain all 11 minus Doug Jones, right? Because they've got 12. So let's say they retain all of them, which is possible, I'll, I would say, especially if we look at down ballot, right? We look at the down ballot effects. Even if you take Doug Jones out as a loss, they only need five wins, five new seats, right? I- and normally we'd be like, oh, my God, five, that's so many. And how could we? Po- 
I think it's right. possible. I'm not going to say how, probable. I think it's possible. How likely is it that Doug Jones win, like, holds on to that? Well, so we saw, I mean, one of the reasons he won was on the shoulders of black women, right? They came out in droves in Alabama and they carried him to this victory. And if we see the same kind of mobilization that we saw in, in 2018 or whatever it was, 18, 19, whatever year, I'm sorry, I can't remember, whatever year he won the special election. Um, I think it's possible, but I will say if Tommy Tuberville is the nominee, then you're going to get He's going to get, I would say, probably more voters, more votes than Jeff Sessions. So Jeff, Jeff Sessions has had a rough week. The president has been trashed <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah, it is. It's, yeah, it's it's going to be tough for Sessions to win. I mean, oh, it's just it's. I actually feel bad for Sessions the way that Trump has treated him on Twitter. So I'm going to go back and find some of the things you said about Jeff Sessions and play them next time. <laughs> they like still stand, but I mean, Trump is. It's talk about like emasculation. I mean, Trump. Is just it's it's awful. That's why he's a manly man because he emasculates <laughs> other men. Suzanne, what if you had to put odds on the Democrats taking the Senate? What would you say? 50-50? Is it greater than that? Less than that? Oh, I hate this question. Um <laughs> I would say I'm I'm putting it at even odds right now, but I think as we go further in the summer and as we see who the VP pick is and we see some of the fluctuations in the state-by-state polling, because I'm all I keep saying, I'm all about the down-ballot effect. Honestly, who comes out for the president is going to dictate who wins these Senate races, not the reverse. So have me on again later this summer, and I will try to you know narrow down. Right now I'm saying 50-50. Well, the way you dodge my questions, I'm not sure if we'll have you back on. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm tell you you're right about everything and just say- <laughs> Oh, my God. All right, we should move on because this I'm, I'm so excited about this last topic. So uh, jumping to Trump and Twitter. So time for a weekly look at Trump's tweets. If you've been on the Twitter recently, you have noticed that uh, he's been promoting the conspiracy theory that for, for former Florida congressman and current MSNBC anchor Joe Scarborough may have been personally involved in the 2001 death of an aide at, in his district office. We should note that Trump is doing this even though law enforcement found no evidence, absolutely no evidence of foul play in connection with her death. Nevertheless, Trump has explicitly called for the case to be reopened, calling Scarborough, quote, a nut job with bad ratings and telling the, quote, forensic geniuses to keep digging. He has tweeted, quote, when will they open a cold case on psycho Joe Scarborough? Did he get away with murder? Some people think so, unquote. Uh, Twitter issued a public apology to the family of the woman who died. But for now, the social network will not be taking action against the president on these tweets. Twitter has rules in place banning bullying and harassment. Yet the company grants special exemptions to Donald Trump and other political figures for tweets that uh, would be violation for regular users. As long as Twitter deems those posts in the, quote, public interest. However, on Tuesday, Twitter did slap a fact check label on two other Trump tweets in which he claimed that mail-in ballots are fraudulent. Phil, what's your take on whether Twitter should give Trump the social media boot? I, I'm sort of torn on this. I, I mean, I, I I think that as the president, the stuff that he says and does is noteworthy and important, right? There's this similar debate about how much the news should cover the stuff that Donald Trump says, right? He's the president. What he says is newsworthy. But on the other hand, and this is the one that I, in this particular moment, I'm more drawn to, uh, I, I 
sort of think that the rules should apply to the to people regardless of what position they hold in society. And so if Twitter has rules against harassment or, you know, attacking comments or whatever, then that should apply across the board and you shouldn't get special permission to to violate the social contract, right? Just because you're the president. The willingness to I mean, it seems in some ways it's it's a kind of a very American notion that the president gets treated differently, but it's also inherently sort of un-American, right? This idea that the president shouldn't be held accountable or shouldn't be kept in check. So I, I sort of think that, yeah, I mean, he should have to abide by the rules of the social platform if they matter. And And when I think about taking it to an extreme, right? So if Donald Trump is, you know, if you were to put another president in place, there are limits, right? I think everyone would come up with limits by which a president, you should say a president shouldn't be able to say that, right? Uh, whether it's, you know, on the extreme right or extreme left, if they start calling for the execution or the murder or the genocide of a subgroup of people, you would say that's that's across the line and they should get banned, you know, take that off of Twitter. So that acknowledges that there are limits. So the conversation just then becomes, where are the limits? Where do the limits apply? And, and it seems like, why should the president have different limits than other people? If it's if it's acceptable or unacceptable for me to say certain things, then if anything, we should have a higher standard for the president. Boy, I really came around on the end from, from flip flopping, <laughs> like, believing in my point. Yeah, anyway. Uh, that was fun to watch, Phil. Suzanne, what's your thought? Yeah, I mean... So- so I'm thinking about this in two ways, right? And we've talked about this over and over again. And you know, we talk about with our students is that, you know, the legitimacy of the office is at stake with the act- the actions the office holder takes, right? And I think we've forgotten this, right? I mean, this started with Obama, the way Obama was treated and the way that he was attacked as the office holder and how that affected then the legitimacy of the office. And now Trump has taken that to a whole nother level with his own behavior. So his entire engagement on Twitter and the way, not just on Twitter, but really the things he says just generally um, have an effect on the, I hate to use the word honor, but at least the legitimacy of the office itself. And so are there any other office holders that can speak the way he does without any sanction? Are there any other office holders who can tweet the things that he does without any other sanction? No, he has this exception, which yes, I think presidents should get some special dispensations, but not for democratic norms and rules not for safety of others and not for just like basic human decency. Well, especially like this, this matters, right? I mean, as you were talking, Phil, like you were, it made me think of Rwanda and genocide, like one of the ways in which the government spread the message of, of engaging in genocide in 1984 in Rwanda was through the radio. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it's, it's, it absolutely impacted that. And I'm not suggesting that this is similar, but Trump uses Twitter to his advantage. Uh, I mean, there are constantly things that I think I know, and then Trump tweets the opposite thing. And I think, well, am I wrong? Right. So his repetitive and consistent message is absolutely having an impact, right? I mean, Obamagate, he just keeps saying Obamagate every day. And now I'm like, well, there's got to be an Obamagate, right? I mean, it's just like he just keeps doing that. And and you're right. Anybody else does this, they're kicked off. It's not, it's, you know, so I'm torn, torn between the idea that the president should have this audience. I also wonder though, whose, whose job is it to reinforce these norms? Obviously, the parties are political parties are not reinforcing the norms. So does it fall to social media to be the one to step up and say this has gone too far because nobody else in our society is, is really doing that? We're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there are those who are urging the president to go harder, right, to take to take yeah. others to task more. And the more he does it and then the more he says that it's 
the liberal deep state fake news media that is silencing conservatives, if that's the angle he uses, which is what he's doing right now, it's going to continue to widen this gap. And then let's say Twitter does sanction him. It turns into a partisan political issue. And take it to another level. And that was the beauty of today. So th- this morning, Trump be, uh, tweeted that there was there was big action to follow because of what uh, Twitter did to him. Uh, and then, like two hours later, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, is tweeting out a tweet basically saying that uh, we condemn all countries around the world who use the internet to curb speech. Right? I mean, so there's such a disconnect between what the United States stands for globally and what the president himself is is doing. It's it's fascinating. All right, Nick, Nick, talk me down. Yeah, no, yeah, the bell rang. It's my bell. I, no, All I'm right. taking my time on this one. You're this taking is, back your time. I'm taking back my time. Thank you. Um, I... I this I, I, we've 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 talked about this one before. Why, why do I feel like we've talked about everything in some capacity at, at, at this point? It's episode one seventy three. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, Here's the thing with with social media. Realistically, you're talking about there are special exemptions for political figures. I get that. And and we talked about this with the uh, the press conferences, Uh, the fact that uh, CNN and and other uh, um, media networks were weren't broadcasting them in their entirety or at all. Mm -hmm. Um, That, to me, is exceptionally problematic, because to me, the way that you affect change or understand the policy decisions and stances of a a particular administration or a particular person within that administration is to see exactly what they're saying at as 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 much as is humanly possible i, I to me it's this is a lack of of trust in the American people to make decisions for themselves because realistically you talk about people getting banned on Twitter. Based on the research that I've done and 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 just the the list of people who are on there, I there are almost no political figures who have been permanently banned on Twitter for what they've said. You can talk about pundits, you can talk about conspiracy theorists, you can talk about journalists to some extent about what they've said, you can talk about fake accounts by foreign governments. There's tons of examples of things that have been banned either temporarily or permanently. Political figures, especially in the U.S. government, are not among those people. So to say that it would be that that people who are out there who have said something are held to a, a different standard than the president is, I don't think is necessarily accurate. Um, I think that the best way to, again, to understand what's going on is to have the information out there and make the decision that yourself. More than that, if you're talking about a system that is giving exemptions to political figures, you are not a forum anymore. You are now a publication that's putting something in front of a statement from a governmental figure. And that comes with different standards. And that comes with regulations as well, not to censor people, but to create an even playing field for the the people who are saying things on that particular platform. This to me is one of the few instances where I think regulation is a good thing. Social media does need to be regulated the same way that... (laughs) That they're putting <laughs> that they're putting out information about emergencies. Right, that information, that right? 
<laughs> I've said that before. I know I've said that before. Asked for more regulation. Yes. No, I, I I will never say that regulations under any circumstances is ridiculous because that's that's a ridiculous statement. But if you're putting information out there the same that you uh, same way you would about governmental statements about emergencies in some capacity, and that's the way people are getting their information. If it's coming from a a vital governmental figure or the 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 leadership of the federal government, that's something that needs to be out there. You can talk about, unless he's specifically advocating bodily harm for a particular person or group, the same way as in Rwanda or a number of other cases around the world, this information needs to be out there. And the way he's going to... What? What about like when he he talks about the drugs and the medicine, the hydroxychloroquine? I don't care. Put it out there. (laughs) Because again, we talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> I, so I, I can see that I can see the 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 argument of either side, like to to sort of build off what you're saying, Nick. My problem is that I want to see consistency, right? If the argument is that ideas right. should have a free flowing, should be anywhere, then anyone should be able to say anything they want, and no one should get banned from Twitter. But right. it, or you should have some policy that says these certain ideas are are problematic or bad or are dangerous, and and so they, regardless of who they are, get get banned. Consistency would be. Not Nice, because I think you're right. Big name politicians don't tend to get banned, but I I would imagine David Duke considers himself a politician. He ran for the you know Senate and governor in Louisiana and all that stuff. Um, if he were to start spouting KKK you know propaganda as a politician, I still think that Twitter would say that's unacceptable. So it's it, yeah. even there is some line in that some politicians' speech is acceptable and some isn't. And yeah, make it consistent, right? If it's a principle that that saying this is problematic, then it should be problematic regardless of who says it. Yeah, well, I think either keep it consistent the... or get rid of social. Don't don't allow anybody on social media because in the end, this <laughs> no realistically, if you're going to talk about public listeners, <laughs> there's not that many of them. On like us on Facebook, like us on Twitter. No, realistically, when it comes down to it, these are private companies and private platforms, and if you're if you're going to have standards for different people or different standards for different people, then this isn't a, a, a public forum. And you shouldn't allow any political speech from anybody in any governmental position to be on there. You should ban it. But it's an economic decision for them because it gets them users. It gets them additional eyes on their particular product. Like this, this is this didn't exist 20 years ago. We don't need it. We can get the information elsewhere if we really try. So just don't allow it on there. This is why the you know the whole conversation about free speech has evolved in a way where it at one point it was just like free speech no matter what and now there's there's conversations about the way in which power factors into that right so everybody has free speech but not everybody has the same power and what we're seeing is the president has dramatically more power than anybody else and to spread you know spread that message and to 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 connect to the Twitter thing I think it's curious that Twitter decided to crack down on his tweets about the mail and 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 voter fraud on mail and not on the joe scarborough thing the easy one is the joe scarborough it's awful it's it's inhumane i mean what he's doing this is this is i mean it's the 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 husband of this woman wrote a a really powerful letter saying that please stop this mr president twitter please stop this right and and that's not what's happening right so if twitter was going to take a stand you take a stand on the tough issue to say what you're doing here uh, you know, pushing for this cold case is wrong. And they're not doing that. They're they're falling back to something to say, like, hey, get some more information on voter fraud. Right. right. 
Um, no, yeah. The uh, again, these are unelected people who are putting their own. I, I, I mean, depending on what you're talking about, their own uh, particular viewpoint and spin on what is important and what's not, regardless of what you're talking about in a particular situation. That is more problematic than anything to me. Uh, like, I, you know, we're we're talking about political issues and uh, political issues and emotional issues, and trying to meld the two and figure out a regulation that fits both. And you can't do that. And frankly, I don't want somebody who I didn't elect to make that decision for me. So you know, I, that, all this, who's Jared that? Kushner? That's a valid point. <laughs> we solved it. <laughs> Suzanne, you look like you had something. I just, um, I mean, I have all things like always, but I guess the, just the one thing that I, well, I guess just two things briefly is that, you know, I'm having a hard time. I, I, in principle, I agree with Almost everything Nick said, which again, mark it, because oftentimes you don't hear me say that, right? Um, <laughs> but I think where I'm struggling is that, and this is like naive, and I realize very Pollyanna as I'm saying it, and I should know better, is that like the president should be fucking better than this. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're on Facebook Live, sorry. But he- We, we just, they just banned us. Sorry! <laughs> that, that the, we should expect the president to be better than- accusing somebody of murder on social media where he has hundreds of millions uh well not hundreds of millions but it would be seen and shared hundreds of millions of times right so then if i'm a, an employee of twitter i run twitter i have to re- i have to try to reconcile what are what is the user agreement but also how responsible do i feel to allow this to go on when I think that there could be serious harm and not just physical harm like Joe Scarborough, but to Bill's point about voter fraud, about mail-in voter fraud, is that there could be detrimental effects on our democracy, on voter turnout, on trust in electoral institutions and processes. If the president lists all these ridiculous ways in which mail-in voting is fraudulent. So that's where I'm stuck. Sure. This was a good comment. (laughs) Nick, I, I imagine we're over time, right? I, yeah, I don't care. We can give you that. <laughs> it's our show. I don't care. That's why they don't ask me back. They only. <laughs> no, no, no. This is this is really good. This again, I, I, I am. So I, I really think that this is. I think to Suzanne's point, it's important for the democracy, and not just because of Trump. Right? Trump is going to be the first of many. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm thinking internationally. Hasn't Twitter, like uh, with Bolsonaro down in Brazil and Maduro? I mean, they've done some editing, mm-hmm. or, or I don't know, follow up with those tweets. And and you know, I just I just think somebody has to be responsible and i don't think we should be looking to social media um but but the platform given what it is nick i'm i'm with you regulation well regulation. I, 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 like you're right in, in those circumstances i 100% agree but at the same time there's 200 uh different accounts uh linked to the chinese government that put out 90,000 tweets about the coronavirus coming from uh, you know the us military or a us lab which haven't been banned, which haven't been removed. And, and it's this picking and choosing of, of with bullshit standards that don't make any sense. If you, I, I, it should be either an open platform or you need to remove the political elements to it and be consistent in what you're doing. Because the only way that having this on there is positive for you is if there's monetary benefit. There's, it, it's a private company. There's nothing else that 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 is is a benefit to you. It's not a private company. It's a public company. But you're you're beholden to your stockholders. You're not 
beholden to the American people. And that's that's a problem for me. And it should be a problem for everybody. (laughs) Markets will solve it. That's true. (laughs) And the markets will solve it. Yes, yes. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, Suzanne, thank you as always for for joining us. Thank you for having me back. I missed you all. Yes. Um, Now I forgot the entire outro. I'm really not doing good at this stuff. Um, Oh, yeah. We're on uh, uh, Twitter. Uh, follow us on there to, for updates and other various things that I can't remember at the moment. Uh, you can find... They follow us on Facebook, man. They're there. <laughs> Tune into the live shows uh, every Wednesday around 4.30 p.m. Central. Uh, you know, Ask questions, do whatever. We'll try and answer uh, anything that we can. Um, the podcast you can find on most major podcasting plat- uh, platforms, uh, iTunes and Spotify, definitely. Uh, review us, share us, like us through there. We always appreciate the support. Uh, beers that we try you can find it untapped on ios or android just search for barstool politics on there uh and then our merch line you can find on teespring.com uh look for a direct link on our social channels um and i think that's everything and i continually run out of breath when i do these things nice bill <laughs> i wear my t-shirt today yeah <laughs> um anything else guys we're good. good. No, just shake your head for the. <laughs> it's really good. All right, Suzanne, thank you again. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you all. Bye. See you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers. Shut up and sit down.